Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Tim. As we navigate these trying times, just want to remind you, we are here for you. If you need help or someone to talk to, please reach out at ianvanhusen.com. In this episode, Father Ian talks about what we can learn from the contemplative vocation during these times of isolation. Enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. So it's kind of fascinating. I, I think this, the way this whole thing has unfolded, if we're honest with ourselves with coronavirus, I, three weeks ago, and these guys can talk about this more afterwards, I was thinking that what we needed was we were going to have to like be fired up because we'd be working a lot. I just thought that there'd be a lot of needs, right? You know, you're shutting everything down. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to be in a lot of needs. I think maybe even a lot of us thought that. But what's happened has actually been kind of the reverse. There's, there's a lot of people who are being taken care of. But when, it's, when all is said and done, I think all of us are finding that we have a lot more free time. But the crazy thing is, it's not free time in the sense of vacation, though. It's not like we're going to Hawaii and we're sitting on a beach and we're exploring caves or whatever. It's actually free time that's at the same time incredibly confining. That is, we have to stay within a few different spaces, which is interestingly very similar to the contemplative vocation. So where I'm shifting focus in these coming weeks is I think the contemplative vocation has a lot to offer us in the sense of, so there's a classic notion the St. Benedict talks about that's in the rule of St. Benedict, which is ora et labora. And I believe that one of the ideas that was incredibly important of the monastic vocation was that when you have solitude, you have to keep yourself busy. And, and, but it's a paradoxical thing. You keep yourself busy, but then you also give yourself spontaneous time. So you don't want to have too much spontaneous time. You don't want to be too busy. You want to find a right balance. And I think the monastic vocation has a lot to offer that. Now, before I get into that more and kind of flesh this out, what the monastic vocation can teach us, a little bit of my own story. So before seminary through seminary, I was obsessed with the contemplative vocation. I spent a lot of time at monasteries. So so much so that some people in seminary thought that I wouldn't be able to be a pastor because I spent so much time in solitude. And I would do prayer marathons both in seminary and in my free time. I'd go to monasteries and I would try to spend like eight or nine hours straight in prayer where I would only take breaks for the bathroom and to like get something to eat. So I would eat and then go back. And what I would try to do is I would try to navigate the silence. I would also do prayer marathons when I had free time in seminary. Like if I had a Saturday open, I would try to spend three hours in the chapel in prayer. And I don't know if that's the best way to learn things. I don't, I don't know if I would recommend that for everybody. But what I learned in that solitude was I learned how to navigate silence, how to navigate and how to keep yourself occupied even if you're sitting in the same place and not moving for three hours. Sometimes I would sit literally in the same place for like three hours straight. And I might only move as you know my back got a little sore or something like that. And I would shift a little bit. So I try to stay as still as possible. And what I learned from that is something that the Desert Fathers talked about and the monastics talked about. So the, you have the Desert Fathers. Who are the Desert Fathers? There was a group of monks who went out into the deserts of Egypt. They were the beginning of monasticism around the 3rd century after Christ, so 300 years after Christ. So this is before the Great Schism. This is before, way before the Protestant Reformation, early church stuff. And they would go into the deserts of Egypt of the 3rd century through the 4th century, and they would spend their time in prayer. And what they found was, was that the fight was within. 
that even when they stripped themselves of all of the worldly cares, when they had nothing, there's stories about like with the monks where they, they have no possessions but one little cross on the wall, a simple cross. And even though it's just that one cross, they'll, they'll covet it like it was like the most precious thing in the world. So there's all these kind of anecdotal stories from monasticism of weird temptations or the greed and the, the, the drives, even though they're completely isolated and cut off from society. And so what they found was, was that the fight against sin is primarily within the heart. It's primarily interior. So with that, they started to read the scriptures in that light. And they started to realize first that their first goal was what they called purity of heart, which we hear Jesus talk about in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So they started to realize that if you can keep yourself calm, that if you can keep your emotions stilled, and that if you can allow the Holy Spirit to heal the wounds of sin in your heart, that as your heart settles, you, lo- you learn to connect with God's presence within. And we're going to come back to this, this idea of a still presence, a still voice that's deeper than our drives, that's deeper than our instincts. The other, pre- the other scripture that they would talk about a lot, and I'm going to get into one that, that talks about entering into the rest, is they would the, the three things that we heard at the beginning of Lent where it says, you know, do almsgiving in secret, fasting in secret. Then there's the one that Jesus talked about, praying in secret in your inner room. And what they would describe this as, as a mysterious journey into what they called the heart. That is, the, learn you, the more you learn to dwell within the heart, the more you learn to overcome the work of the enemy. In fact, I was talking with a nun, a contemplative nun, who, who's, a, who's a semi-Carthusian. It's kind of a long story. I'm not really supposed to talk about their order because they, they try to keep hidden from the world. And she said, she was talking about vigils where they would pray through the night. So they would go without sleep for 24 hours. And she said something that stuck with me. She said, you can go without sleep and you can be refreshed if you learn to dwell within the heart. I was like, that's deep. I have no idea what that means, but I'm going to strive for that. But there, there's some truth in that. There's this, what the, the desert fathers would call an inner concentration. That is, there's kind of a stillness within. And it's, they would talk about the physical organ of the heart, learning to connect the beating of the heart. But the idea is it's within, it's deeper than your intellect, deeper than your will, that there's a still point that if you can connect with that and you can keep your attention focused there, that you can overcome the work of the enemy. They call that inner concentration. So with that in mind, the first passage I want to get into for a few minutes is Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 10. And Hebrews builds upon this idea that we hear in the Old Testament of the Sabbath rest. What is the Sabbath rest? Some people kind of interpret it as doing nothing, right? And of course, doing nothing is very hard to do. But, but they often, the idea we get of with rest is laying back on your couch. You got your, your, your you know, your, your, can't, your, now it's probably like with your cell phone, right? So you got your phone, you're scrolling, you're doing nothing, um, you know, whatever it might be. You're watching television, you're watching a movie, you're playing board games, you're kind of doing nothing. But the idea of the Sabbath rest of the Old Testament that Hebrews picks up on is deeper than that. It's this interior harmony. It's this contemplation. And I kind of want to flesh that out as we, we walk through uh, Hebrews chapter 4. By the way, this is what we should be striving. What has occurred to me is, so there's a small group of people right now, and I've talked about this before, who are incredibly stressed out because they're working long hours. I, I at first thought that us church people were going to be in that category. Not so much. We, I mean, we, we have plenty of work. We're reaching out to people. We're not just sitting and being idle. But the reality is we have a lot of free time. It's more like your medical workers 
and like your politicians. But I think even for some of them, I think there's a little bit of a low right now. I don't think uh, Biden is like exactly hopping. I think people are working hours and getting prepared, but I think there's also a lot of downtime. They have a lot of free time when they're not working. So when, when we're in that state where we're not working long hours, we have a lot of free time, our goal is to keep ourselves occupied so that we can enter into that rest and keep that kind of flow throughout our day. So I want you to think about that flow. And you've experienced this with sports, right? You've been in the zone, right? Have you been in the zone running? Where like you're running, you just, you feel that runner's high, you feel in the zone, have you felt that? Absolutely, right, we've all felt that. You felt that, Caroline and Sylvia? It's like when you feel that zone, you wanna be in that flow on a regular basis. And I think this passage can help us to understand what that flow is. So the, the chapter title is The Sabbath Rest, verse one, chapter four. Therefore, let us be on our guard while the promise of entering into his rest remains, that none of you seemed that that none of you seem to have failed. So keeping on our guard, they talk about guarding the intellect, guarding the heart. So that's guarding against the thought traps, guarding against the desolations, the work of the enemy, everything that's going to keep us from entering into that rest. For in fact, we have received the good news just as they did. Good news. But the word that they heard did not profit them. For they were not united in faith, and those who listened. And I'm going to come back to this in a second. But for those who believe, for we who believed enter into the rest, just as he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So there are many people who may profess to be disciples, who may check off all the boxes, may even do a holy hour and do Lexio Divina, but they're not entering into the rest. There's a deeper principle, and it often involves layers of things, right? So one of the things that has to happen sometimes is there has to be a healing of our subconscious, a healing of memories that has to take place. And that purging and that healing often happens in silence. So what happens is in the solitude, all that stuff surfaces, and it needs to be healed and worked through. And then afterwards, and if you've ever experienced this, when you have that breakthrough, afterwards there's a rest. There's a release. And that cycle kind of goes over and over again. There, something surfaces, a fear, an anxiety. We process it. We turn it to the Lord. We surrender to the Lord. We learn those strategies in solitude. Then afterwards, bam, we enter into that rest. We enter into a consolation and an anticipation of contemplation. So, and yet his works were accomplished at the foundation of the world. So verse four, for he has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in this manner. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he's, he's going back to the beginning of creation, the seventh day, the Sabbath rest. That's what he's talking about. So remember, God created for six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. This rest is the height of creation. Contemplation is the height of prayer. So, um, and again, in the previously mentioned place, they shall not enter into my rest. So he's connecting, they shall not enter into my rest, with the Sabbath rest that God talks about in Genesis. Therefore, since it remains that some will not will enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. He once more set a day today, when long afterwards he spoke through David, as it already quoted. I would understand this spiritually. He says today. So today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And he quotes this, the rest of seven. Being present to the present. So one of the challenges can be is is trying to connect with how we're experiencing things in the moment. And so what, what can happen is we spin our wheels about the past or we get afraid about the future. Right now, if you go into a holy hour and you're obsessing about what's your next job 
or you guys are obsessing about marriage or whatever. Try to gently work against that. So in the cloud of unknowing, it talks about, I'm going to talk about this more, is to enter into contemplation is to bury everything under a cloud of forgetting. And I've talked about this in other talks, that contemplation is a kind of death. That is almost like mystically, when we enter into contemplation in the holy hour, we let go of everything. Paradoxically, I mean, I know you guys love each other, but you let go of your preparations for your wedding or considerations for the future just for a moment. I mean, sometimes you're going to return to those in prayer, but sometimes just setting it aside. Like, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about my family. I'm not going to think about my job. I'm not going to worry about whether I agree or disagree with what's going on. I'm going to die to self and in a mystical way be united with heaven. I'm going to bury, and the, 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 cloud, the, the cloud of unknowing gives the phrase, I'm going to bury everything under a cloud of forgetting. So now if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterwards of another day. So he's just kind of proving the point that the Sabbath rest is something deeper. Therefore, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. And whoever enters into God's rest, rests from his own works just as God did from his. So this is the last point I want to make based on Hebrews. So God rests from his works. What is contemplation? So there's a good way of thinking about it that the Catholic mindfulness book gets into. They talk about a doing mode versus a being mode. I've said this a lot. You've heard me talk about this here at Newman. You guys, you've heard me say that some of your best ideas come in the shower, right? So what's the basic principle? When you're in the shower, you don't have an agenda. You're just letting the, the, the warmth or the cold, well, cold showers are a little bit different. Warm showers, it's got to be a warm shower, right? Can't be a cold shower. So if you're taking a warm shower, th- that steam is hitting you, you know, the smell of the soap, because it's my sister's soap, so it's that really good, like, all-natural soap that she makes. So the smell's hitting you. You have no agenda. You, you have nowhere to go. You've got 15 or 10, 15 minutes just by yourself. And in that rested state, there's endless possibilities. There, you have a fresh mind, a childlike mind, where you don't have any agenda. You don't have to do anything. You're not trying to accomplish any goals. That gets at the heart of what this rest can be about in this con- con- contemplation versus active. So there's the, there's the gift of contemplation, which is a mystical grace, but there's also a contemplative outlook. That is that when we spend spontaneous time with no agenda. Now, we don't want to do this day in and day out. We don't want to do this for hours every day. But a half hour or an hour, when we do a holy hour, or when we have some free time and we open God's word and we just kind of explore without an agenda. We're not trying to solve any problems. That's often, paradoxically, when we actually solve our problems. So, and that's the other dynamic. Sometimes when we let go of things, this is the classic, you know, comparing contemplation to sleep. You've heard that phrase, right? Sleep on it before? Because there's something about it when you're sleeping, like your subconscious is working on it. You're working on it by forgetting about it. And then you wake up and you're like, damn, I got it, right? You guys have experienced that, right? You've experienced that. So there's a certain kind of contemplative sleep that we can enter into in prayer when we set aside everything and we enter into that death of contemplation. So what I've been trying to do a lot lately with my holy hours because of the stress and because of all of the struggles going on is I've been really focusing on burying everything under a cloud of forgetting. And I kind of do this two ways. So I've talked about this in other content, but I've never talked about it with students or with you guys is there's two ways to enter into contemplation. What I call the path of knowing and the path of unknowing. So what I, let's start off with the path of unknowing. That is, you can sit down for a holy hour and say, I'm not going to think about these things. I'm going to pour myself into prayers. I'm going to take simple little prayers like Jesus, I trust in you. 
or the Jesus prayer, Jesus have mercy. I'm going to tie it with my breathing and I'm going to resist every thought that arises and just focus on my breathing and just focus on the rhythm of it. St. Ignatius talks about this in the exercises. The Desert Fathers talk about it. It's a great way to pray. You can even take your rosary and just pour yourself into the prayers and say, I'm not going to think about anything. I'm going to forget about everything. Great way to do it, right? I call that the path of unknowing. And there's a few other strategies you can use with that. The other way, the path of knowing, is to meditate on things that are not directly tied with your current circumstances. So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, and when I'm engaging in more knowing, a knowing path, is to meditate on heaven. So to, like, and have you ever seen Dante's, like the images of Dante's uh, paradise? So you see like the choirs of angels and all the, and you can use like beautiful art. And I imagine myself talking with Jesus or the saints that like all this is said and done. That like I'm in heaven with them. Everything is forgotten. And I try to imagine that stillness and that peace of heaven. And just having a casual conversation with the angels and saints about what has taken place here on earth. And I found that that, again, can create that sense of perspective. So we put our our mind in the heavens and we forget about our cares for a little bit. And we imagine ourselves in that peace and that love. So those are kind of the two ways that we can we can enter into this contemplation. Now, what I want to do is I want to finally give you one passage that's the classic text to consider on meditation, on contemplation. You guys have all heard it before. It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 15. It's the case of Elijah. So it's one of the greatest stories, right? So and actually, there's icons in the east of this. So Elijah, just before this, he slits the throat of all these prophets, right? He kills all of the prophets of Baal and his rage of fury right so he's righteous for the lord he then jezebel finds out that he's killed all these prophets and she's like i'm gonna kill you so he runs and he flees so the first part before this is he flees and he's so tired because he's been walking day and night that he wants to pass out and die but god gives him nourishment and and continues him on so finally he's fled so far that he's come to a cave he's come to a shelter And then this happens, and this is a beautiful moment. So he's tired, he's exhausted, he's he's fleeing from Jezebel. And then it goes, there he came to a cave where he took shelter. But the word of the Lord came to him. I love this. The word of the Lord came to him. And I love how God questions, and I've talked about this before, God questions him. Why are you here, Elijah? Interesting question. Right now, we can even ask ourselves, why are we here right now? Like, why am I in Greenville? Why am I here Like, not in the sense of, like, there's something wrong with that, but, like, why? Like, why? And he answered, I have been most zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They have destroyed your altars and murdered your prophets by the sword. I alone remain, and they seek to have my life. There's a lot going on right now. It's like, there's so many conflicting emotions right now. And, and sometimes we can feel very much alone. But think of this moment in history. Elijah is the last prophet to remain faithful. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. So for the average person, all seemed lost at this moment. There's no priest or prophet. They're completely without good leadership. The only leader that they had after he kills a whole bunch of people has to run and flee and hide. And, and they don't know where he is. And so there's like this sense of literally the weight of the world is on the shoulders of Elijah. And I alone remain, and they seek to take my life. What a powerful moment in salvation history. One person left. Crazy to think about. 
Verse 11. Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will pass by. So he's going to show him his glory. So what is the glory of the Lord? So think about all the perceptions we have of the glory of the Lord. If you imagine the Lord showing you his glory right now, what would you think? You'd imagine like clouds parting, you know, big white dude with like a beard, a white beard being like, Nick, I have a mission for you. You know, whatever. Or Corey, Sylvia, I have a mission for you. Or like angels and, 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 and like, it looked like, like uh, the, the Sistine Chapel and gold and all that. But that's not the depth of God's presence or God's glory. So we're going to find that out. It says, I will pass by. There was a strong and violent wind rending the mountains and crushing rocks before the Lord. Early in our spiritual life, we love sweetness. We love like really physical ecstasies. And you see that sometimes with people, right? They love, you get, you get that praise and worship going. You're like, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it, man. And you're just so excited. You're at SLS. You're at Seek. You're just feeling it deep. But the Lord was not in the wind, right? So the, the, the Lord was not in the wind. So yes, those things are good, but they're not the fullness. There's something deeper than those emotional highs. And, and we need those emotional highs. We need that SLS, seek mountaintop of emotion. But right now there's a deeper kind of reality that we're being called to. So after, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. By the way, there's this great scene um, in the movie about the Blessed Virgin Mary, or I believe it's Anne, um, St. Anne, um, the Blessed Virgin Mary's mother, who's reading this passage to them as children. And it's, it's right before she receives the Annunciation. It's a really beautiful scene. I believe it's in a movie that was done like 10 years ago. So, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, this is the key, a light, silent sound. A, a quiet presence. So not in the big displays of power and glory, but this stillness. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been most zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They have destroyed your altars and murdered your prophets by the sword. I alone remain, and they seek to take my life. So he repeats what he has to say, his situation. He's relating everything to the Lord, and then the Lord gives him a mission, which in silence, the Lord gives each one of us a mission. The Lord said to him, Go back. Take the road to Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hezel as king of Aram. He's given a mission out of that silence. All of us need to enter into that rest. We need to learn to listen to that still voice of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the challenge for all of us. I don't think there's going to be dramatic. I mean, we might see a, a need where we're going to have to stretch ourselves. But for most of us right now, our focus needs to be about entering into this rest.